2021 was an eventful year in Canadian politics. On top of COVID-19 and a federal election, we had a new cabinet, a scandal in the armed forces, and heightened tensions between Canada and China. And that's not even the half of it. I'm Dave Breckenridge, and this is 10-3. Tasha Carradine, a columnist for the National Post and principal with Navigator Limited, joins me to discuss the biggest stories of the year, who are some of the big winners in 2021, and what to watch out for in 2022. Don't forget, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, we're even on Amazon Music now. I'd love it if you could leave us a rating, a review, and tell your friends about us. So, Tasha, it's been, I guess busy would be an understatement, but it's been a intense year in Canadian politics. There's been a lot on the go, you know, not just COVID, but there's been an election and scandal in the military, all sorts of things that have affected the political world in Canada in 2021. So to do something a little different for this episode, I came up with a list of categories, some key questions for the year. So why don't we just get the ball rolling and I'll jump in with the first one. I'm curious from your perspective, what was the biggest COVID related political story and why was it important? That was a tough one because there's so many, like you said, and I was tempted to say, well, Jason Kenney's imploding popularity in Alberta, for example, or <laughs> flip-flops here in Ontario for the government provincially. But I, I'm going to go federal and I'm going to go to the endless overspending that is driving our deficit you know, into the stratosphere, our debt now at one point, I don't know, one trillion. Uh, it's over a trillion anyway. Mm-hmm. But to me, that is uh, it's a political and economic story, but it's a political story because it's going to be constraining our choices and forcing choices, I think, on the government in the months to come. The next budget is going to definitely reflect that because you can't just keep pushing money out the door without any sense of where it's coming back. And so it's going to have long-term implications. So that's why I feel that is the most important COVID-related political story is this growth of government and what it means down the road for all of us. Yeah, they certainly, looking at our financial picture, they've certainly increased spending beyond what I think a lot of people expected that they would, even when they were re-elected. In the fall. Now, looking at at non-COVID stories, you know, again, there's been a lot. We had an election that a lot of people felt that we didn't need. There's been the ongoing scandal in the armed forces. Was there a story for you that didn't have any dealings with the pandemic, whether economic or political or health related, that really stuck out for you this year? Yes. And it's Canada's relationship with China. Hmm. That has many facets to it from what are we going to do on Huawei to finally the return of the two Michaels to now you know, Dominic Barton leaving his post as ambassador, the whole change. And even during the election, you mentioned the election, but the the issue of, of interference by China. I think that the relationship of Canada with China is it's a struggle that countries around the world are dealing with and is to reassess their relationship with what is at once an essential and important trading partner, but also clearly a threat to global security because of their larger aspirations that drive a lot of their political decisions and their economic decisions in ways that democracies like ours do not experience. So I think that that to me is a very big deal. And like the earlier story I mentioned about spending, I think it's something that's going to be driving forward in the next year as well. And after that. I mean, even with the Olympics alone and the the fact that, you know, there's questions about sending anybody, let alone just a diplomatic boycott that, that definitely weighs in there. Now, It's been a tumultuous year for Justin Trudeau and his government, to say the least. Was there a story on which you felt that they managed to win 
and even a, a big win? Was it the fact that they won the election mm-hmm. or was, was there something else that they performed well on this year, either to your surprise or to your expectation? You preempted me there. I was going to say the biggest win is the fact they won, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that they managed to pull victory from what looked like the jaws of defeat for a while there. And I think that I hate to say it, it's a vindication of their policies, at least with the electorate that they chose to appeal to, but enough of an electorate to get them back in government, even if it's a minority. So, you know, for all the criticism that we throw at the government, and there's a lot to criticize, politically, they played it right. It doesn't mean it's the right course for the country, mm-hmm. but certainly for the liberals and for Justin Trudeau, you know, he's still in the driver's seat, even if he's only really driving with one hand there. That's true. And the fact that no other leader is really pushing for an election right now leaves him in that driver's seat. He doesn't seem as concerned that the opposition parties could look to topple him anytime soon. No, not at all. No. And that's the big win. So we have the win in the win column here. But on the flip side, as you say, there's been a lot of areas where we can criticize the federal government, the Trudeau liberals for how they perform this year. But for you, was there one issue where they really got it wrong or there was a really big misstep for them this past year. Yes. And it goes back to COVID and management of COVID. And that's all the issues around the border, around quarantine hotels, around the fact that testing was promised but not put in place at points of entry into this country. You can say all you want about domestic transmission of the virus. It doesn't get domestic unless someone brings it here. Mm -hmm. And we know for Omicron, for example, yes, spread around the world, but the more time you could buy before it installs itself and infects itself in your population and you can get boosters into arms and vaccines into people who don't have them, the further ahead you are in the fight against this return to, I don't know, what we call this sort of weird dystopia we live in again, that we're all, you know, the normal that we had for a few months is just evaporating, boof. And the government could have dealt with that. From the beginning of this pandemic, there's been a resistance to really installing appropriate measures to keep the virus out as long as possible. And it frustrates me no end because the government seems to get away with it. And it's a political decision or just mismanagement. I don't know, but it has implications for everyone. So I think that is their biggest fail. And what about the vaccine piece of it? I know that a lot of the procurement issues were in 2020, but we didn't really start getting the rollout until this year. Does mm-hmm. that factor in for you as, as another failing on the government when it comes to COVID? Well, I was annoyed at how they managed, you know, they, they wanted to strike a deal with CanSino first, which fell apart, which was predictable. And then, yes, we didn't, we got a slower start than we should have to the vaccination process. But, you know, Canada is extremely well vaccinated compared to many other countries around the world. I think the provinces really are the ones on the front lines of vaccination. So I'm not going to throw that at the federal government. You know, once the vaccines were here, It was a question of rolling them out. And that was really a provincial responsibility. And um, I think largely that's been done okay until, you know, the Hunger Games booster situation we're facing now here because because the failure was to keep Omicron at bay as long as possible. And had boosters been deployed earlier, again, a provincial decision, we wouldn't be in this situation right now where people are now not getting them till the new year, which means over Christmas, they're going to be with people, other people transmitting it, not protected as they would have been otherwise. So. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's a shared responsibility between the feds and the provinces on the vaccine issue. 
as mentioned earlier, the, the Liberals won re-election in the fall, and this meant for the Liberals a new cabinet. Obviously, some senior people who are still in the same position. I'm thinking of uh, Christia Freeland, who retained her post. But there were some new faces that came into cabinet, you know, Anita Anand in defense and Melanie Jolie in foreign affairs, even though she had been in cabinet previously. But since the post-election cabinet shuffle, has there been a minister who you feel has handled the job well? Well, I don't know if she's handled it so much well as she's doing well. I mean, that's Christa Freeland. You mentioned her earlier. I mean, not only did she score plum positions in government, but she's been getting a lot of positive press. I don't think it's an accident. I think, you know, she's definitely positioning herself as the next potential leader of the Liberal Party. She has a book coming out. She got all that positive mention about her travels in the Ukraine and fighting for their for freedoms and all that stuff. And she's front and center, too, in terms of just being a voice for the government and being out there and now doling out piles of money to people who may be grateful next time at election time, even though, like I said, that's really not a long term solution, just you know, paying people the way the government's been doing it. But uh, there you go. So I think of the ministers that are there, she's certainly, I would say, the highest profile. But she also has a risk because if all this implodes, she's going to wear it. So fared well for now, but maybe not so much in the coming year. I guess that all depends how it plays out. And, and when uh, the prime minister decides he wants to step down. <laughs> Takes a walk in the <laughs> how snow. That, how that works for <laughs> her, yeah. Now, looking at the new cabinet, is there a minister who you feel either dropped the ball or didn't live up to early expectations for his or her appointment? Well, expectations are pretty low, but I still think she dropped the ball. And you mentioned her too, and that's Melanie Jolie. From the beginning, she appears to be a bit out of her element or out of her depth. She was a no-show at COP26 when she really arguably should have been there, even though she was early in her mandate. Mm -hmm. Why wasn't she there? Did people not trust her to be there and represent the country? She's made statements on China and Russia and recently on uh, departure of Ambassador Barton that have been heavily criticized as naive, showing a lack of understanding. And I think that... It's unfortunate because as a woman, I will say I never like to see women dumped on in political circles. I like to see them succeed, but I fear mm -hmm. that for her, she really has a very steep learning curve and she hasn't necessarily attained it. And so, you know, compared to someone like one of her colleagues, like Freeland, she is not performing as well. In fact, I'd say she's performed quite poorly. And given her critics who were already waiting for her to fall, yeah. reason to attack her. We'll be right back. No, obviously this year in politics hasn't all been about the government, hasn't all been about Justin Trudeau. There's been some interesting moves and some interesting dynamics when it comes to the opposition parties. And I'm just wondering, from your perspective, is there a leader of one of the opposition parties, whether that's Aaron O'Toole or Jagmeet Singh or Yves-Francois Blanchette, who had a good year? Because I know for the smaller party leaders, it wasn't a great year. So I'm kind of thinking that maybe the selection out of the opposition leaders for the best year is out of those three. I'm just curious your thoughts on that. Well, it's funny because, you know, usually when you get fewer seats and less the popular vote, you're considered to have a bad year. But Jagmeet Singh... It was a good year. I mean, you know, he turned an election that arguably everyone decreased their support, but he decreased it less. And yes, he didn't get more seats either, but sort of held before Jagmeet Singh was the hero and parading himself like a hero, like, acting like this was a victory, even though he can't, like you said, I mean, no one really wants an election and saying he's got the balance of power and all this is it's kind of fallacious, but <laughs> he, he acts like he's a winner and there's no movement in the NDP as far as I can tell to get rid of him. Unlike Aaron O'Toole, who, you know, 
I know your next question is going to be who fared the worst. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I mean, in my mind, like I was thinking, like Annamie Paul had a terrible year by all yes, accounts. Yes, I forgot and, about Annamie Paul. That's a good point. She's not a current leader, but yes, okay, she's gone, so she yeah. had the absolute worst leader. year. You're we'll correct. See. And Maxime Bernier didn't do himself or his party any favors in the election campaign, so I was kind of thinking that maybe one of the two of them had the worst year, but you raise a good point. Perhaps it was Aaron O'Toole. Well, only Aaron O'Toole because Aaron O'Toole is a leader with so much promise and a party that is in a position to actually form government. I mean, Max Bernier is never going to do that. And the Greens really weren't in that position either. But for Aaron O'Toole, it is the worst in the sense that he's got a challenge ahead of him, not just to attack the government and do his job, which I think he's got ample resources and issues to do it with. There's the economy. I don't have, I'm not very optimistic this year. The conservatives have a lot to criticize on that. They could really go to town. Instead, he's fighting internal battles in his own party. So that to me is why I would say fared the worst, Mm -hmm. simply because he's got a challenge that it's one of those things that doesn't help anybody. And that the conservatives seem to think, well, it's like, let's knife the leader. All will be well. No, Uh, (laughs) they play that game all the time. That is not the answer here, especially with a pandemic now resurging, with virtual parliament, with this kind of thing. You know, no, people aren't paying attention. They're going to be paying attention to their very, you know, micro lives at the moment. So the conservatives could feed into that and say, your cost of living is going up. Inflation is bad. This government's making bad choices when it comes to management of the pandemic and your life. And like, we have better ideas. Instead, He's fighting his own people. So that's why I say, unfortunately, he fared the worst. Now, obviously, with a with an election this year, we're in the middle of a pandemic. There's been a lot going on that's been sucking up the oxygen, and even in the news cycle. Indeed. I'm just wondering, you know, as someone who follows politics, who's paying attention, is there a story that you feel was either underplayed because of everything else going on this year, or perhaps didn't get enough attention from the public in 2021? Yes. And it is not actually a political story per se, though it has political implications, And that is something far under the radar when it should be far above the radar. And that is cyber extortion. Hmm. The growth of cyber extortion and ransomware holding companies for ransom has exploded in the last six years. In fact, last year, the big story I think that got hardly any attention was that there's the biggest payout ever to a cyber extortionist, $40 million US by a US insurance company that was extorted. And we know what happened in Newfoundland here in Canada. And we know what's happened to hospital systems and universities across the country. Cyber extortion is a serious, serious, expensive problem. And it's estimated that it's going to be $256 billion a year problem by 2031. Wow. So you might think it doesn't affect you, but it does because it costs companies money. It costs time. It exposes people's data to scammers and fraudsters. And you get, all of us get those emails, you know, of like, you won this or whatever, or, I mean, it's all BS, but the point is they get your addresses from somewhere. And this is something that affects everyone. So government is again, behind on this law enforcement's behind on this. We got to pay attention to this because it is just, it's under the radar, but it can also affect politics as we know when it hits the electoral cycles is very scary. Yeah. For sure. Now, that's kind of looking at the year behind. And I want to take a second before we wrap up, and I want to look ahead to the coming year. Obviously, you raise some issues that are kind of in the forefront, things like inflation, Canada's relationship with China and all of that. But I'm curious, is there one story that you'll be paying close attention to in the year ahead? Yeah, the story I'm going to pay attention to really is to beat the same drum. It's affordability. Mm -hmm. I think that is a big story because it's one of those things that, like I said, affects 
everybody. And it has huge implications for government policy, for bank policy, for all of us. I mean, the cost of housing, the cost of food, the cost of the basic necessities, you know, that is going to be to me the driver politically of the fortunes of the Conservative Party, the Liberal Party. Like it's going to it's going to be the determining factors is how bad are things going to get? And I hope they don't get bad. I hope that they really, they don't get as dire as some people predict. But the reality is we've had so much disruption. And now we have again, another wave of disruption, supply chains and everything else that are affected. All of this is like a big spiral of bad things. So that to me, I'm going to be watching as someone who's very interested in economic issues, where's all this heading? <laughs> and what are the implications going to be? So with that in mind, does that impact the person that you'll be watching closely <laughs> in 2022? You know, you asked who I will be watching, and I was trying to think of is there is there a single person I'm going to be watching? There's a few people I sort of keep my eye on in general. I'm curious as to what's going to happen to them. Um, I'm very curious what's going to happen in the Ontario election, obviously, and watching the, the protagonists there. Mm-hmm. Andrea Horvath is an NDP politician who's been around for ages. She has not made any kind of headway against this government electorally, yet she's opposition. What's going to happen the next election here in Ontario with her, with Stephen Del Duca and Doug Ford? Those are three people I'm going to be watching. Very interesting. It's going to be happening in June. Across the pond, I'm always watching Boris Johnson because I just, I find him a fascinating, you know, eccentric, crazy character in many ways, but also sort of a harbinger of politics here. I mean, the issues that the UK with, with COVID have always seemed to be like about a month ahead of what we're, we're dealing with in terms of management. <laughs> yeah, And he weathers controversies like you would not believe. I don't understand how this sort of Teflon goes along. And uh, I'm also going to be, and this might sound <laughs> kind of depressing, but keeping an eye on Donald Trump because he's not gone. A lot of people underestimate what's happening in the United States politically. Biden's really not doing very well. It's unfortunate. COVID has, again, dealt him a blow, but his own people in Congress are dealing him blows, too. He's not getting things through the way he would like to. He's not had the victories that he had hoped to. So uh, is that going to create an opportunity for Donald Trump to come back? I don't know, but I'm going to be watching that, too. Well, the midterm elections are always something I, I exactly. pay attention to because it is it is a very good indicator of where the U.S. is going and, yeah. and how they feel about the presidency. So, yeah. So that's a great list. That was fun. <laughs> Thank you. It was fun for sure. Thanks again. <laughs> Have a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays to you, too. 10-3 is produced by Sean Knox. Theme music by Bryce Hall. Thanks to my guest, Tasha Carradine. More from her at nationalpost.com. I'm Dave Breckenridge. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.